Romans 5, we'll pick up and begin reading in verse 6. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Not only so, but we also join God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Let's pray. Father, in so many ways we feel our own insufficiency to grasp the depth of what's being said. Lord, I stand here as a mortal speaking on immortality and the finite speaking of the infinite. Father, I pray you'd at least allow us to grab hold of the foothill of this mountain. Help us, Lord, to see thy great love and its purity, its beauty, its power. Father, thank you for preparing us for passages like this. Father, I thank you for satisfying the cravings in our soul. Help us to understand, Father, help me to speak properly. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I suppose that almost without exception, if somebody comes to you and yells to you or speaks to you the words, the dam is failing, in most cases that's synonymous with major disaster, especially if you happen to be located downhill from the scene of the problem. I like to look somewhat into the history of engineering. We talked about one engineering feat last week. and uh, You know, history of engineering really has some tremendous accomplishments that, that mankind can claim some credit for, but like all human endeavors, it also has to claim credit for its fair share of expensive and tragic catastrophes. One such example actually occurred uh, about four hours south of here. Back in 1976, the Teton Dam was, had just been recently completed, and this dam was quite a structure. It was 305 feet high. It was 1,700 feet thick at its base, and it was over 3,000 feet long. And it was an earthen dam, which means it was made out of rocks and dirt and uh, sealant materials. But as it was being filled for that first time, 
something went terribly wrong and it suffered a catastrophic failure and the project was eventually abandoned. Now in the aftermath, of course, the people came in to study and research and and what they found, there were actually several causes for the problem. For one thing, the material used to build the dam was insufficient and shouldn't have been used. It was too porous. The dam was built in an earthquake-prone area. Furthermore, underneath the foundations of the dam, the, the ground was full of fissures and cracks and several large caverns, which it proved later could not be adequately sealed. Well... The other side of the coin, when they began to fill the dam, signs that a collapse was imminent were written all over the place, yet they went unheeded. For instance, as it began to reach capacity, thousands of feet down below the dam, high-pressure water springs began to spray out of the earth. Well, that was a sure sign that water was forcing its way underneath the dam and undermining the foundation. And after that, across that 3,000-foot face, water spots began to appear, which showed that the backside wasn't adequately sealed and the water was wicking through. Now eventually one of those water spots became a hole and the hole became a river. And as the crowd gathered and the media stood there watching in horror, as a 1,000 foot section of that earthen dam disappeared like a sandcastle beneath an ocean wave, and 80 billion tons of water roared into the valley below. Now down there in the Snake River Plain, there were several towns and villages that were hit quite hard. Two of them, in fact, were completely wiped off the map. Amazingly enough, while all death is tragic, the death toll was 14. It could have been a whole lot higher. There was at least some early warning. Also perishing was 13,000 cattle. Thousands of homes and businesses and memories to go along with it. And then an estimated $2 billion of total damages uh, that occurred on that day. And at the end of the story, what really had happened is, this massive earthen wall that had been constructed by such ambitious human hands, for the express purpose of holding back the rising water, what it really became was the forum, the amphitheater for the water to display its terrifyingly destructive power instead. Now we finished last week in verse 5 where we talked about a flood of a different sort. We read there of the Spirit of God which sheds abroad or literally gushes out the love of God in the hearts of His children. But now as we enter verse 6, there's a greater explanation given about what exactly the love of God entails. And so we make at least an attempt to comprehend the incomprehensible. You know, ever since that devastation back in paradise, mankind has effectively been engaged at trying to build an earthen dam across the river of life. But you know, no sooner did construction begin that downriver springs of water began to appear as promises of the coming Messiah were given, the sure sign that someday that dam would be completely destroyed. And over the generations, that dam raised higher and it raised higher, and then water spots began to appear. 
showing that the flood could not be held back much longer. And then at the appointed time, the dam was simply overwhelmed by the omnipotent power of the river of life and the water of life. And what we see is all that man's done to build up to keep God out. God actually used to become the amphitheater for displaying His love for all of eternity. And that's what's taking place in this passage. Now in verse 6, it begins with a very succinct description of our own condition. We see that in verse 6 and verse 8. And here's how he describes our condition. And really just in those three phrases, once again paints a devastating picture. And he does it in terms of our character, in terms of comparison, and in terms of capability. I'll notice in verse 8, he says, we were sinners. Now I know that after going through with a fine-tooth comb, chapters 1 through 3, there's really no need to expound on that at the moment. Hopefully all of us have a fairly solid grasp on what that means. But he's saying, you were morally bankrupt and totally depraved. And then by way of comparison, here in verse 6, we are called ungodly. You know, it's interesting to note that one of the words for sin, which is iniquity, refers to a defiance or a flouting of God's law. But the word ungodly specifically refers to a defiance against God's person. To be ungodly is to be an open rebellion against not just what God has said, but who He is. To be ungodly is to be unlike Him. How tragic that the one creature made in His image has become so unrecognizable. And how about His capability in verse 6? He says, we were without strength. You know, you see that same word translated elsewhere as sick, as weak. And then you find it in Acts chapter 4 with the man whom Peter healed on the way to the temple with John. That man was referred to as impotent, powerless. So he's saying not only were we morally bankrupt and depraved, not only were we engaged in open rebellion against the God of heaven and unlike Him, we were totally powerless to do anything about it. You know, the person who is under the guilt of God's judgment in and of himself is as powerless to change his condition as the lame man was to heal his own legs. And we've got to get there before we can really come to the cross. And notice twice in those two verses we see the word yet. He says, you are yet sinners. You are yet without strength. That means this is something that was currently engaged in. There was a leaning away from the Creator. The feet were running to mischief. Mouth was speaking blasphemies and hands were swift to shed blood and to, to clutch the idols. 
And we had no intention or ability to stop. You know what else that word yet shows? That one little word really takes away the idea that God has moved to do anything on our behalf as a reaction to what we have done to prove how sorry we are. We talked last week about grace and we want to know why. Why does God show grace to me? The reason is because that's who He is. And the same is true about His love. I've heard accounts told to try to explain people the way of salvation and they'll explain it something like this. You know, there's this powerful king, there's a trespasser in his land. He captures the man and he throws him into the dungeon. And after a moment, the man is given an audience before the king and he falls down. And then he begs for mercy and pardon. And on the count of his sorrow and his obvious intent to not do it again, the king is moved to pity. Let's the man go. Do you know that's nothing like why and how God saves us? The picture was one of open rebellion and defiance. It was we were yet sinners and yet without strength and God intervened and plucked us out of the fire like a brand from the burning. And if He hadn't done that, we would have never come. In verse 6, we see God's unbelievably gracious response. You know, if you only knew the bare facts of the story... He knew very little about the attributes of God of love and grace or about the gospel that was promised. And you knew of a powerful and omnipotent and holy being that formed an entire universe out of nothing. And he filled it with order and beauty and design and functionality and there... At the very pinnacle of his creation in paradise, he plants the crowning achievement of all of creation. He gives that crowning achievement one simple command, which he despises and rejects. And time goes by and the picture gets worse until all the world is defiled and God intervenes with a cataclysmic flood. He destroys them all, effectively starting over with eight. Time marches on. The picture gets more and more bleak. The rebellion gets more and more deep. The ignorance of God gets worse and worse and worse until now God is going to intervene to do something about the situation. And if you stop right there, and mankind has any sense of the, the terror of his crime and of who it is he's offended. All he can do is wait for the blow of justice to fall. But all of a sudden, the Son of God arises. He lays aside his robes of glory in the exercise of some of his attributes. He walks out on the bliss and the purity and the joys of heaven and takes upon Himself this body of flesh and descends to earth, but He does not come to unleash the tide of condemnation 
against rebels. He comes to unleash the tide of condemnation on himself on behalf of the rebels. So what does he do? It says Christ died. What does it mean to die? In our human existence, death is a period, the end of a life. Death is a shut door. Death marks an end. It marks finality. But most of us know in the Scriptures, death is not an end. Death is a transition. Death is a separation. We see death in the Garden of Eden at the beginning. Man dies there spiritually and he's separated from God. We see not long after the death of the body as the soul and spirit are separated from it. And eventually there is eternal death, the banishment of the soul from the intimate presence of God. I mentioned before, I believe it's incorrect to say God is not in hell, but here's what it is. Mankind has settled his posture and kept the enmity there. He's passed off into eternity, leaving the very reason for God to be hostile towards him, and in response to God's character forevermore, all he can do is display wrath towards the one who's gone that way. But do you ever stop to think why an animal couldn't atone for sin? I mean, is an animal sinless? Well, uh, technically speaking, the answer to that question is yes. You can't impute sin to an ignorant beast with no moral capability. So it's accurate to say that animal has never transgressed against the God of heaven. But there's two things an animal cannot do. Number one, an animal has no positive righteousness to give to us that we might meet God's demands. But here's the second one. An animal can only die for you one way, and that's the death of the body. Do you realize as sinners, we have earned all three kinds of death. We have earned death, separation from God on earth. We have earned the death of the body physically. And we've earned eternal death in hell. For us to be redeemed completely with finality, there had to come one who would take upon himself our nature and to atone for our sin would die for us in every way. Death of the body, yes. There's a reason it says in Isaiah 53 that he, God the Father, shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. And here's the lamb upon the cross. He's crying out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And I don't know how he could suffer spiritual death on that cross in separation from his father, but he did. God's attributes, his character is infinite. That means... That any offense against him, however small, is infinite in its scope. And that means that any punishment carried out must also be infinite. People jump up and say, I don't like the doctrine of eternal hell. Let me tell you something, neither do I. 
But the reason we can't grasp it is because we have so little understanding of how holy God is. And so an infinite price had to be paid, but if this one was also going to rise from the dead and conquer the grave, he had to suffer infinite wrath before eternity was over. Which means that he himself had to be infinite. Which is why if Christ is no God, we have no Savior. Salvation could never be completed except by an infinite one. And notice his death, it says, was in due time at the proper or the fitted time. Primarily that's speaking of God's viewpoint on the subject. You know, Christ is called the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world. You see, in the mind of God, this was always before Him, but right when God had appointed, the Son of God arrives to split time and to split history exactly when God wanted it done. But in a sense, we could say it's also true uh, historically or politically. I find it amazing looking at when Christ came and when the gospel was given. Right in the early stages of the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, when the world's unified primarily under one world empire, the ease of travel compared to what it had been was incredible. The language of the known world became Koine, Koine Greek, which is unparalleled in its precision. And that, of course, would be the language that God would choose to write the New Testament. And Christ's death came in due time to all of us personally, didn't it? There was a time, if you belonged to Christ, when it became real to you. When all of a sudden you could look upon the Lamb of God with freshness and with understanding. And God came to you in a time where you were prepared and cultivated. And He says, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Now in verse 7, we move on to a really a dramatic contrast. Here's what's happening in verse 7. It's like God is taking one quick sweeping look at all of the sacrifice and all of the, all of the uh, heroism of the entire human race. And in a moment, He searches through all the records looking for a suitable comparison for what He has done on our behalf. And you know what he finds? He finds there isn't one. I know stories can have their place. I'm not saying they can't. But I personally think we need to be extremely careful using any illustration of human love to demonstrate what God has done. It's kind of like human illustrations of the Trinity. You know what the illustration on the earth of the Trinity is? There isn't one. There's not one that's not full of major flaws in theology if you push it too far. So uh, the point of verse 7 is not to say, here, let me find you an example. It's saying, let me show you what humanity does for itself. And then let's contrast that. He says, 
For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Now he uses the term righteous in the general sense. Somebody who's not guilty of a particular crime. Uh, We've all heard of somebody that they go to the courthouse. Let's say it's a high profile national trial. And there's a major cross section of the American population that believes this person is totally innocent. And so they start signing petitions. They write letters to senators. And there at the courthouse, there's hundreds of demonstrators expressing their peaceful indignation by holding up these signs. Well, they're convinced the man's righteous of what he's accused. But I wonder if the judge finds some loophole in the law and were to step outside and say, well, I've got a deal for you protesters. I'll give all of you opportunity to stand in this man's stead and take his place. I suspect the line would be rather short. But, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. This is talking about somebody not just who is not guilty of a particular thing, but who's been particularly good to you. Somebody you feel you owe something to. Somebody who's benefited society in general or you in particular. I can look around at the men here and I can say probably truly, I'm looking at men who have pushed came to shove, would lay down their life for their wife and for their children. Maybe others in this room. And that's a good thing. But it still isn't an accurate comparison. Someone says, well, what about for my enemy? What about showing love to the unlovable? You know, there's an interesting story told in a variety of places. There's a Baptist minister by the name of Peter Miller. During the time of the Revolutionary War, he lived in Pennsylvania, just outside Philadelphia. And uh, there was another man in his town named Michael Whitman. Now, for one reason or another, Michael Whitman hated this preacher's guts. Couldn't stand him. Did everything he could to oppose him. Bitterly persecuted him. Slandered him. Opposed anything he tried to do. Well, eventually this Michael Whitman was found on the wrong side of the law. He was accused of treason. He was condemned as a traitor. And sentenced to die at the end of a rope. Well, Peter Miller hears about it. And after some deliberation... Uh, The man happened to be a friend of General George Washington himself. And so Peter Miller walks the 70 miles down to Philadelphia to intercede on this man's behalf. And so here he is pleading with George Washington for the man's life. And George Washington effectively says, Sir, these these are dangerous times. Treason's a serious crime. I cannot grant you the life of your friend. Peter Miller said, friend? He's no friend of mine. He's the bitterest enemy I've ever had. He hates me. Washington's curious at this point, and so he begins to ask more questions. And eventually, by the end of the conversation, Washington was so impressed by the show of Christian grace, he actually pardoned the man and let him go. Now, as moving of a story as that is, here's the problem. You take any million people who hate you with a satanic hatred and do all they can to ruin you. 
you lump them in with Lucifer himself. And that crowd, if given a thousand years, could never, ever sin against you the way you have sinned against God. Primarily because the loftiness, the holiness of his character that we can't comprehend. verse 8 we see a radiant display but God commendeth his love once again notice it's but God in other words in complete contradistinction to what I've just pointed out let me elevate things up into the heavens to demonstrate what's happened God commendeth his love toward us the word commendeth means to set on display you know it's like a a jeweler And he spreads out these precious gemstones to attract the attention of those passing by. Right in the middle is a a radiant diamond of inestimable value. And etched in it are the words, amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, hast died for me? You know, that jeweler will often do two things. Number one, he'll place those gemstones underneath a bright light to show all of their radiance. The other thing he'll do is he'll put a, a black cloth behind it so that all the features will stand out. You know, it's just like the, the Spirit of God shining the spotlight continually on the radiance of the love of God manifested on that old rugged cross. And you notice the tense here. God commendeth. In other words, one of the great works of the Spirit of God today is to shine a present tense light on a past tense event. And that's something He's going to do for all of eternity. This is going to be the song... Of the redeemed in heaven. What about the black cloth? The Holy Spirit shines on this radiant display against the black backdrop of human wickedness, which makes it totally stand out. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Tell me, did we see that illuminated? in the historical account of what took place on the cross. Here's the Son of God crucified between criminals, suffering and bleeding on that cross. And what's happening? Multitudes are passing by. To some, He's an object of curiosity. Others shake their heads. Many mock. I find it amazing, even soldier, even the criminals nailed the crosses next to him, at least for a while, it says they cast the same in his teeth. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. Himself, he, or others he saved, uh, himself he cannot save. You know what that's an illustration of? Yet sinners... Christ died. That's you. And that's me. 
But here's what else it shows. It shows at least a partial answer for one of our greatest questions. If God is so powerful, why did he let sin into the world in the first place? Now, we don't know completely. But from the divine side, at least partially, we know sin is a temporary insanity that's been allowed into the world. And yes, it's caused destruction. But from God's side, He allowed it to accomplish some tremendous purposes. You know, man's sin was like that great earthen dam. And for mankind's part, He kept building it. And with the help of the demons of hell, He thought He'd shut God out. But what happened was, God had allowed that wall to be built. And when it became so high, it looked impossible to do anything about. God had prepared the amphitheater on which to display His divine love against the backdrop of so much human failure. Downstream from this dam, there's three more blessings mentioned quickly of justification. This flood tide of the love of God just leaves it in its wake. First of all, verse 9. We shall be saved from wrath. Now, which wrath is it talking about? Wrath is a general term. But because of the fact the article is there in the Greek, it's the wrath and uh, the fact that it's mentioned as something future shall be. It's speaking of the future lake of fire. Now it's true, we can take other passages and show that the child of God being justified is free from a wrath principle. God will not deal with you in wrath as His child. He will not deal with you in wrath during a tribulation. He will not deal with you in wrath in the lake of fire. Once again... Not because justice has been circumvented, but because justice has been satisfied. Now here's the reading, he's, the reasoning. He says, much more than being now justified by his blood. He says, if the death of Christ plucked me out of the fire while I was in such open rebellion, and he satisfied the legal demands of the character of God, and the motivation for him doing that was the infinite love on my behalf. And that was demonstrated while I was still dead in my sins and for reasons that have nothing to do with me. Here's what that means. Not one flame of hell can ever have any authority to so much as think about touching you. You know... The doctrine of insecurity not only does violence to the justice of God, not only portrays God as justice needing to be satisfied two or three or four times, it also does great violence to the love of God. Tell me something. If God loved you with that infinite drawing love when you were dead in sins and trespasses and rebellion against Him, what can you possibly do now that the law is passed to make Him stop? 
It's a terrible insult to divine love to think that you can remove yourself from it. It says, now justified shall be saved. End of discussion on that one. Spurgeon used to say, maybe I've mentioned it before, but it sticks in my mind. He used to say the smallest statement on the blood of Christ is like a slender thread that I could hang on to with boldness and swing upon the whole pit of hell with total confidence because they cannot touch me. Secondly, we shall be saved by His life. Verse 10. If when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. We use the word reconciled. That means to fix an old relationship. Theologically speaking, that's not what the word means in the New Testament. Reconciliation in Scripture is not the fixing of a relationship that once existed. Reconciliation in the New Testament is the institution of an entirely new and different relationship. So here's what he's saying. If when you were the active, unrepentant enemy of the High King of Heaven, He brought you into this intimate relationship with Himself, what else could His life produce but entire salvation for you? We shall be saved. You remember, if you're a Christian, salvation, remember, has three time zones. You are saved by the blood of Christ. You are being saved. That's the process of sanctification, growth in Christ. You will be saved. That's glorification when you're finally made into His image. Justification past, He's speaking of the present and the future tense. Saying, listen, if when you are an enemy... Death and that humiliating bloodshed on the cross could bring you into intimate closeness with God. What can divine life do? Now that the law is passed, but give you the same life. Where Jesus said in John 14, verse 19, Because I live, ye shall live also. God begins the work. God finishes the work. Thirdly, verse 11. And not only so, but we joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Now that word atonement is the exact same word that's translated uh, reconciled. The previous verse. And what he's saying is by understanding this, there's an intense joy and satisfaction in who God is and what He's done as we understand what reconciliation really means. Reconciliation really has four major parts. First of all, from God's side, there has to be a movement on His part to break down man's hostility, to prove the enormity and the penalty of his sin, and to set His love radiantly on display. Secondly, man responds to that of his own volition. Uh, Mysteriously, in a way that it can be said God ordained it, But yet man chose. I can't figure that one out. I doubt you can either. Thirdly, as a response to that, man is granted a new nature. He's granted a new standing. 
He's granted a, a pardon of his sins. They're washed away and the handwriting of ordinances is taken away. And then from God's side, now that the very thing which has made God respond in hostility towards man has been taken away. And now man has full access, reconciliation. Do we get this? Your standing before God is as settled as if you had never, ever sinned in the first place. Think of Adam in that garden before he failed. Draw a line between him and you. You stand in the same place in God's legal high court. Tell me something. When was the last time the love of God really seized you? When it really became a motive for serving Him? When it really caused you joy? Is John 3.16 another stale theological fact? You know, Tozer once said that the scientist is in danger of losing God amidst the wonders of his world. I said the Christian is in danger of losing sight of God amidst the wonders of his word. There's so many things to us that become so true. They get thrown in the back of the mental closet and they lose their radiance. I can only point you to one place if that's the case. That's to take up the Scriptures and get alone with God and gaze on that Lamb on that cross and deliberately take time paying attention to what God says about what you were and how He intervened and what the results have been. Do you joy in God having been reconciled? I have to look in the mirror and ask that question. If I don't, it's because I don't understand what that really means. That's why. Maybe you're sitting here and you've never believed on Christ at all. The message to you is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Isn't it a wonder that our standing can change in a moment? We can be reconciled to the God who's had to treat us in such hostility in a moment. And yet somehow, while His holy character demanded that the hostility be there and the threats of justice overriding all of it for those who would believe, the love of God washes all that away. And the love of God is intended to take your life, your background, your failure, your sinfulness and use that not to make you hang your head but to magnify God's love on your behalf and to be strengthened by the fact that He didn't save you because of you. He saved you because of Himself. Let's pray.
Father, turn our eyes upon Christ. I pray you teach us what it means to be seized upon, to be captivated by the wonder of your great love for us. Lord, we thank you that while we were yet sinners, yet without strength, unable to change our condition, that you intervened so powerfully Well, thank you, God, for not hurling men into hell at the first transgression. Lord, we praise you for your tremendous long-suffering. Lord, we recognize that you show long-suffering to give men time to repent. Help us, Lord, to be conduits of this love, ambassadors of this glorious message. In Jesus' name. Amen.